Welcome to the Sum of It All Thinking Classrooms podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And we're going to explore Peter Liljal's newest book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics. In this episode, we're going to explore chapter three on where students work in a thinking classroom. This is a great opportunity for us as we continue to plan how we move back into school buildings and face-to-face -face instruction. This chapter offers us a specific step we can take in supporting all students in high quality mathematics experiences as we make those plans. So we're glad you're back with us for this episode and can't wait to explore this chapter with you. Coming from a secondary teaching experience, I'm always curious about what happens in elementary classrooms. So Mark, uh, with your background in teaching elementary students, tell me a little bit about where students did their work in an elementary classroom. Thanks, Audrey. You know, it's funny you asked that because I was thinking back in my head right now of when I moved from using like line sheets of paper for kids to write their math work on into using a math journal. And, uh, you know, I, I, as I think back on that, it, it really did become, as Peter mentions, like he uses the phrase catch all. It became a catch all place to record thinking. You know, it was like, this is our math journal to record our thinking. But it was really a lot of the place where you did the math work from the book in the notebook instead of a line sheet of paper. So it, it kind of was this evolution from the notebook paper. Yes, at times I did have kids um, share their thinking and, and, and record reflections in their math journal. Um, but I, I don't know how much it was like a thinking journal. I, I'm just being really honest about that. And how much of it was thinking and how much of it was just a place for their to record their mimicking, you know, going back mm -hmm. to that, that word mimicking, you know, I'm wondering if it was, if it was kind of like a mimicking journal in some ways more than a thinking journal. That's, that's a really interesting point. You know, we would have long debates at the secondary PLC <laughs> meetings about whether or not we should have journals or let them write it on individual pieces of paper. Um, and if they were journals, what would go in it? Would homework be separate from those? Should they look like lab notebooks looked in a science class? Um, and so it's really interesting that you say that. It's like, is, is it a workspace? Is it an authentic workspace? Mm -hmm. Or is it really a space for them to write down and record what the teacher was thinking during class, right? Which then becomes yeah. the, the mimicking space. Yeah, and it, it makes me think like, is it is it the place where you take those notes, quote unquote notes, by the way, notes many times are just the teachers mimicking right, that we've recorded in the journal. Yeah. And so do we take those notes and study them? You know, is that the purpose of the, become the purpose of the journal? Um, I even know that like, at, at times as educators, we grade, we give them a grade on, on their journal. And, and so it makes me go back to that notion of rough draft thinking. Um, you know, is it, is it, is it a place, is, are we destroying that idea of rough draft thinking when the journal becomes this thing that almost is a product and something mm -hmm. to be graded? Um, so I was really thinking about that. So, um, and then I saw Peter mentioned um, something about chapter seven and 10 where Peter will address notebooks. So I was really intrigued and like on the cliffhanger um, as I'm thinking like, because I mean, he's really good about talking about it's not all or nothing. It's like repurposing things. So I'm like, well, if not this for notebooks, because if we're, if we're going to move into this new strategy where they may not be using a notebook as much for the same purpose, but then 
should we still have a notebook and how do kids record their thinking? Um, so it made me eager to explore that in some of these other chapters. Yeah, I think that's a great point right there is just to remember that it's not an all or nothing, but maybe a repurposing of some of the spaces. And so I, I think this is a really interesting um, chapter to think about how we compare what surfaces students write on. And so the mm. research, the, the research that he did to conduct that and just comparing the different types of surfaces, I thought was really fascinating to think about both the whiteboards, like this erasable, very easily erasable surface, right? Um, right. And paper pen, um, I think they use chart paper type of thing, and then like the notebook, but then they place them both vertically and on tables, like <laughs> flat and like horizontally um, and on the walls. And I thought it was fascinating that when it came out against these factors, almost anything was better than a notebook. Yeah, wasn't it interesting how the whiteboard even horizontally was still different than the whiteboard vertically? Yes. Did you find that interesting? Yes. So I think that that's that. And I think that that's like the researcher's question, right? It's like, why is that different? And I think it's that noticing, you know, in teachers, it's like, I just couldn't get it up on the wall today. Like we had too much mm -hmm. other stuff. And so I just had it sure. on their desks. Right. Mm -hmm. And not recognizing that each of those little decisions might affect how your students are able to engage or how quickly they're able to engage or the quality of their thinking engagement in a task or activity. I just think that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I agree, I agree. The idea that whiteboards can be so easily erased was something I both loved as a teacher when I made a mistake because I could easily <laughs> wipe my mistake away. Right. <laughs> um, and I also noted, you know, that idea of it reduces that risk of just trying something, right? Because versus the paper and pencil, I always think about I still have this image of being a kid and having all those eraser, you know, leftover eraser oh, yeah. pieces right. all over my yeah. desk from having yeah. to erase a large amount of. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Wow. You just brought me back there. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's like almost a trauma associated with your desk full of that pink fuzzy stuff. Right. And you're yeah. like, Oh, yeah. you're the kid covered in that. Um, or your desk is covered. Wow. You didn't know what was going on or you did it wrong. And yeah. You know, the whiteboard so easily erased takes that piece away, which I think is just fantastic for students. So I think your point about like having them flat on the desk, having them on the walls, they're better than those, um, than the ink or the pencil. Mm, you're right. You know what, um, you're also making me think about with this idea of these non-permanent surfaces is is where you put them up in the classroom. You know, I, I know that Peter Lillajal has this, this specificity, they found kind of the sweet spot around the distance between the groups. Um, and it, within the sweet spot, there was just this whole notion of knowledge mobility. I thought that was such an interesting, interesting phrase, knowledge mobility. And we of course talked about that with chapter two with the randomized grouping. And I think the reason that I'm so drawn to that phrase is because it's it sort of as I think I mentioned in the previous episode, sort of went against my my nature, you know, which is like, let's keep everybody, I want groups, but like, let's keep everybody in their groups, you know, stay where you're supposed to be and <laughs> do your work. <laughs> so um, this idea of knowledge, mobility, increasing the students' reliance on both, on, on each other, both within the groups and between the groups. Um, I just thought this, this is really profound in terms of 
breaking the mold of the role of the teacher and the role of the students within the classroom. Um, it really even made me think of this whole idea of mathematical authority and who has the mathematical, math, mathematical authority, um, you know, and having the groups, having that sweet spot of distance between them allows them to walk over and, and, and get an idea or um, share an idea. And I, I, th I think the phrase, don't copy my answers, I think that phrase originated in math class <laughs> because it's sort of, and you know, like don't copy my paper, don't copy my answers. So I, I think that that's something that um, that knowledge mobility piece is, is really can uh, break that I think, right? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think that in that sweet spot of how you position students around the room, you also give space for, um, as you discussed, like this ability to have nonverbal communication too, mm -hmm. like the, the way people stand, you know, I, I think about students who walk into class and kind of just slump over in a chair. And obviously I'm, I'm living in a secondary teacher's world, <laughs> right? Where you can just see how they're feeling about themselves in the world by the, yeah. by the way that they kind of fall into their desk, right? Or become you know, kind of under their desk almost, how much of their body they try to hide um, right. versus standing. And there is a vulnerability to standing, right? Like you're out there, but you also have this opportunity. And I think of um, what Paige Metz, our colleague who helps us out with physical education and health and talks mm -hmm. about how when you stand, you're able to have your mood and your physical posture oh, yeah. um, is so highly correlated, right? Um, and right. for many of us as teachers, the hardest thing about this pandemic and teaching from home has been <laughs> moving from teaching standing up all day to sitting down, right? And that, that, that what that does to our, our bodies and how that affects our moods, um, it's a real thing. Like we can feel it ourselves. So why wouldn't our students feel it? Like you're, it's to walk, when we talk about shadowing the students and to walk in their shoes, um, when you're asked to sit for the majority of your days, you know, and just sit there in a chair, that's very different than the expression that they would get to have physically in standing. Um, but then those nonverbal cues too. I was thinking about that, Mark, when um, you were talking about the spacing of them around the room, yeah. how, how that invites other people to be curious about what each other are writing. Um, and it opens up other people to be able to see their work and mm -hmm. interact with it in a way that doesn't feel like you're sending a spy over into, you know, huddle over right. their paper in their group, but it's just part of the classroom. It's part of um, the, the shared space. Yeah, I, Audrey, I just love that analogy that you gave around the pandemic and how teachers are sitting more. And I, I just think that is so great because I think that it's so important for us to put ourselves in the shoes of our students and think about how if, if sitting isn't beneficial for us all day, then how could that, how could that possibly be beneficial for our students? Um, I think that's, that, that's a great point. Um, yeah, similarly, we've tried some vertical non-permanent surfaces with adults before, haven't we, Mark? Yeah, actually, you know, that's, that's so true. And, and, I, and as you say that, I'm flashing back to, you know, when you're leading professional learning for educators, um, there's a lot of similarities to leading professional or excuse me, to, to classroom teaching. And um, uh, we won't unpack all of those today, <laughs> but the one that, I, that, I'm, that I'm pinging on is this idea of 
you know, you brought this strategy, you had read some work uh, of Peter Lillijaw's before his, his, his latest book came out. And I, I, I know you brought this strategy into our workshops that we were co-leading. And it was just so amazing to set up adults around the room and to be able to just, the thing that I found that was so compelling is that as a, as a facilitator, I stood in the middle of that room and I was able to just turn around 360. I could see what everybody was doing. And just the body language changed tremendously, even with adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and that notion of just one one person holding the pen. And I know that we really, really incorporated a lot of the the same strategies that he recommends in the book. And I, I just thought that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I thought my biggest memory from um, one of those moments is working with a very diverse group of educators, some of whom were self-proclaimed math phobic math phobics, you know, that they just did not want to do math problems or talk about math Um, and what it did for their mathematical agency to be standing as a member of a group on a vertical non-permanent surface, right? Um, And be allowed to be part of that. It, It goes back to what you said about their mathematical authority. It was in the room. It wasn't resting with you or I as the leaders of that professional learning. Um, and they, they found the solutions amongst each other and, um, and not feeling like that it was a matter of being held, um, held accountable to a teacher, but to right. their, their classmates in that instance. Right. I mean, the participation was palpable compared to if we would have done that um, with people seated. The other thing I remember that you even pointed out, because you would time it, mm. the the time that it took for people to start writing something was remarkably fast with that, with, with combining those two strategies, the randomized visible random groups and the non-permanent surfaces. So I, yeah, that, that, that was pretty great to actually try it out and and see see it in action. Um, You know, the other thing I'm thinking about Audrey is around, um, you know, how these strategies uh, connect to equity. And, and um, really the, the quote on page 61 um, just jumped out at me in terms of equity. And, it, and, it, and part of it says, it turns out that when students are sitting, they feel anonymous. And when students feel anonymous, they are more likely to disengage. So I thought of this, I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier about what sitting does to you over time. And I just thought of this whole cyclical nature of this whole piece um, with students sitting and feeling disengaged, teachers looking at students and saying, wow, my students are not paying attention. They don't care. Um, and just how that could actually be exasperated in terms of equity. If I have some unconscious bias regarding some of my students in my classroom, and, and that's combined with this, this dynamic of sitting and how it disengages you, I, that might reinforce my, my thinking that my kids don't care about being in class or they don't care about learning. Um, and I just think it's, it's just really important in terms of our beliefs about what our students are capable of and our beliefs about what they care about. All of that impacts um, how well they do in our classes. And so um, I just thought that, that that idea of them feeling anonymous when they're sitting versus standing was so profound. And I. I agree with you, Mark. That quote stood out to me too. And I, I keep going back to 
what we talked about just in the very opening, which was that what teachers feel they're communicating and what students understood to be communicated to them is often a mismatch, right? And so right. again, like by virtue of having students sit, you are not trying to say you are anonymous and you don't matter to me and you are one of a class. Um, you're trying to offer them a comfortable space to right. be present, right? Um, and acknowledging that you need somewhere to put your stuff down and standing all day would be exhausting as well. But, but what ends up being communicated or felt, mm -hmm. right? That students feel that they're anonymous. And that to me is just, is, it's, it's so important that we acknowledge that and we mm -hmm. think about what we need to do with that information um, in order to change, to change that, in order to connect with students, for them to feel connected to the content and to the classroom, um, that they're Absolutely. valued thinkers and valued members of that community. So um, well I think that part of what Peter has offered us is in the end of the chapter, each of these chapters has ended with these macro and micro moves. All and right. I don't think mm -hmm. we've highlighted them yet, but the macro move is essentially like big picture, what could you do? And micro moves are some of the details of what you might consider um, moving forward. And I think here he really called out some of those equity moves for, in my mind um, to ensure that equity is happening in your classroom. So like big picture, it's try out vertical non-permanent surfaces, right? Try mm -hmm. out a right. whiteboard on a wall, around right. your room for kids. Micro moves are like thinking about like how many markers per group, hmm. right? Have you tried the mm -hmm. one marker per group and what that means? And then have you thought about what it would mean to move the marker around so the same student isn't writing the whole time, what that would do right. for your group. Mm -hmm. And sometimes having that rule he talks about, about how students can't write their own thinking, but about how others, they only can write what others are saying. Yeah, I, I thought that was kind of a cool move, yeah. Yes, right? So I think that like, those are intentionally there. Um, like, and I get that these are finesse points and it's like, take on what mm -hmm. you can manage at a time. Sure. But like, they are there to push towards equitable access for students. Like in each of those places, when you talk about students feeling anonymous, like there will be some students who can stand up and still feel anonymous. They can still feel like someone in my group is true. dominating. They have the marker, they're doing the talking and the thinking and I am not, right? So, right, right. let's change it up. Let's move that marker around. Let's let them only write what other people are writing. So I think that there's places there to just be considerate and thoughtful about how we are continuing to push towards all of our students being included as mathematical thinkers um, and giving them that mathematical agency in our class. Um, and one of my favorite ideas that's mm. very much hidden on page 66 is called slow garbage. Oh, I don't even think I noticed that. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. And I had never heard about this, but it's, it's, it was a problem that I, I have totally run into, which is this idea of erasing quickly. Um, and as a teacher, when kids erase their work on paper or anywhere else quickly, it's like, I don't know what you did wrong. I don't have anything oh, to follow, yeah. right? And right. so many teachers look up and they're like, whiteboards, when they erase quickly and they say, I don't know what to do, you're like, I can't help you. There's nothing mm -hmm. here. You've erased it all, right? So right. he talks about this idea of slow garbage where you can put a box around the thing you want to erase and put one line through it as if oh, it's how like, clever. I'm Xing it out, but I'm not actually using my eraser to swipe it off yeah, the whiteboard. Right. Isn't that super clever? So like it's there as like a footprint for a teacher mm -hmm. or another group to have a conversation around like, what was that thinking? But it lets the group who's writing acknowledge like that was our old thinking and we've moved on from there for now. Um, mm -hmm. 
So it kind of fits the best of both worlds there in terms of another micro move that teachers might consider um, that, that they might have glossed over in, when they read that chapter. Right. So, well, I, you know, it reminds me, I, I, I know some educators that they would have students write in pen versus pencil. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that what that did is it, it sort of frustrated students sometimes because they felt like they could, it's like, well, I don't want you to race, so I'm not going to let you erase. But I, what I like about this move, as you're describing it, is you can still have the power to draw a line through something. And so then that way, you can, as a student, you can still have the power of saying, I disagreed with that line of thinking, and I'm going to go this direction. Versus, I'm going to say, you need to write in pen and never erase anything. I think there's something about um, um, telling somebody they can't erase something that that sort of like you know, runs counter to what we're about, you know? Right. And well, then it you can start developing that idea of we learn from things that we realize were wrong. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about learning from mistakes, like it's valuable to have something left over from them that we can look at and say, I realized that wasn't right. true versus yeah. just completely erasing it and saying, I think I did that already, but I'm not sure if I remember if I did that. So super, yeah. super awesome idea there. You know, one, one thing I'm thinking about from that we've talked about in, in previous episodes is um, this idea of, of there's many strategies here in this book, um, but put, what about putting some of them together and, and um, what, are, what are you thinking about that, Audrey? Yeah, I, I thought, <laughs> I think this is amazing. Like part of me is like, let's go for this. Let's do the trifecta and get these first three happening uh, in right. classes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he even alludes to that a little bit at the end and says like, there's a break here for a reason. Like if you're going to try these three, these three often go together. And the idea of like, put a thinking task in front of kids, get them in randomized groups and get mm -hmm. them up at the at vertical non-permanent surfaces to do the work. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that to me is like, it's both powerful and overwhelming. Um, but on page 59, he said, in the 15 years that I've been engaged in this research, nothing we have tried has had such a positive and profound effect on student thinking as having them work in random groups at vertical whiteboards. They're thinking longer, they're discussing more mathematics, and they're persisting when the tasks were hard. And so when we talk about like research hitting the classroom, like that's something I want to learn from. So even though I look up and I'm like, that feels like a lot of change. That feels like I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can do visibly random groups every hour and change them every, you know, I don't know if I can do that. It's like, okay, but could I do it once a week? Could once a week, could I say, we got randomized groups, we're at the whiteboard and we're gonna do a thinking task. And what would that do for your classroom culture of communicating to students, I want you thinking. Your job is to be a mathematical thinker. Um, so I'm definitely thinking about putting these three together and what that would mean for communicating to students what it is we believe math class and mathematics is and what we expect out of them. But what are you thinking? Are you thinking that's too much or is that over the top? Well, I, I, I think it's a lot. I think it's important for us to, to, to acknowledge the fact that for, for many of us, that could be a lot of change to have happen. But I think the thing that nudges me that direction to to do that if I were in the classroom right now and I had a group of students that I was working with is it's just so profound in the 15 years that Peter Lillejaw has been engaged in the thinking classroom research nothing they have tried 
has had such a positive and profound effect. I think that, you know, thinking about that just really makes me realize that that this is this is really profound. And even just our limited time of doing it in professional learning, I think it's I think it's worth the effort. Um, well, uh, wow, that time went quickly, Audrey. Um, and we're already wrapping up episode uh, number three. And in our next episode, we'll chat about chapter four, which is about how we arrange the furniture in a thinking classroom. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SomeMathChat, and that's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T, with your questions and thoughts about where we work or how we arrange the furniture. We'll look to include some of those in our next episode. Until then, we wish you great mathematical adventures. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.